Hey everyone, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I'm sitting down today with Mr. Jeffrey A. Tucker, founder of Brownstone. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Apparently, your fame is uh, notorious and rising. So I'm, I'm honored to be invited on your podcast. Well, I'm honored to have you here. I really appreciate you agreeing to do this. Uh, I originally discovered your work through Twitter. You had mm. tweeted out that you thought this was the most important piece you had written in 30 years of writing, I think was the tweet. Well, the purge has begun. Is that the purge? And it is titled "The Purges Have Begun." Yeah. Um, and I, as we were just discussing offline, we're in very pivotal times, uncertain mm -hmm. times, and I yeah. think this article did a great job of cutting through the noise and hopefully framing where we are in a relevant historical context. Mm -hmm. um, so. If I may, I'd like to open by reading an excerpt from your piece. Oh, that's fine, yeah. You write, quote, once the consciousness seeped in and the politicians panicked, we moved quickly from travel restrictions to lockdowns to mask mandates to domestic capacity restrictions to vaccine mandates. Somewhere along the way, we learned to classify people by profession, stigmatize the sick, then finally to demonize the non-compliant. It's been 20 months of intensified controls driven by political leaders from both parties with precious little dissent from media organs. I mean, it gives me chills still to read it just now. Um, and as I've argued a lot, I, I just don't understand people's embrace of this current climate because, it, you know, in my view of history, it's like, Trusting your government to dictate your life has never been a winning strategy. Well, but that's that's because you're implicitly a, a student of Benjamin Constant, who uh, in the uh, early 19th century saw that uh, the possibility that, well, what he saw was that modernity had changed the uh, the uh, desiderata of civilization from the ancient mm. world into modernity. So in the ancient world, we divided a, a people according to their access to political power. You're in, you're out. You're clean, you're unclean. Mm. You suck, we don't. Uh, we, you're, I'm a citizen. I can participate in making the laws and constituting the republic. Um, you, on the other hand, uh, slightly suck by virtue of birth, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so uh, by the late Middle Ages, at the end of uh, the feudalism, we, we began to discover this, now in retrospect, a very radical idea that every human person is deserving of equal freedom. Mm. You know, and, and that's, that's weird, right? I mean, like in the, in the course of human history, that's a very strange idea that every single person is deserving of equal freedom and dignity um, by virtue of their existence, you know? Mm -hmm. not, not race, not language, not religion, not, not geography. Um, nothing but humanity really matters. And, and that, that's, that's an insane idea, and it was an experiment, but it worked. Mm -hmm. It worked. Uh, it worked to make the world a more peaceful 
place, you know, after the religious wars of the, of the late 16th century, everybody just got exhausted. I don't care if you believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation or, or worship the Pope or, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me as long as you keep it to, to yourself and, and don't hurt other people. And so we experimented with this idea and we gradually emancipated the world over the, over the last, over the, over several hundred years until we finally got rid of, of slavery and then we got rid of institutionalized misogyny and, and so on. And, and we aspired to have equal rights. So, but, but if you think about it, that was a weird experiment and, and apparently it's, it's very fragile, right? Mm -hmm. So in March, 2020, we, we defaulted back to our, rudimentary revanchist uh, state of um, brutality and said you're essential you're unessential you this surgery is elective this one's non-elective um you know you're canadian uh, so you can't uh, go into america you're american so you can't go into canada and so on so so we began to redivide the world and split the different and and then they invited our homes and said you can't have more than 10 people here Mm. And um, and so on, so on. So we began to um, experiment, re-experiment with a with a kind of a feudal ideal instead of an enlightenment idea. And I think I think uh, um, like you said, we've all taken for granted this idea of freedom and human rights because that's what you grew up with, and that's yeah. what I have more or less grown up with. But I think we, you and I were both a little bit naive. And, and believing that humanity had learned the evils of the past right. and we would never go back. And yet here we are, suddenly surrounded, uh, uh, feeling powerless in a world in which we have, um, you know, like institutionalized systems that want us to go back. And we don't like it. And we're having to deal with this. We're having to understand the brutality of the world that we've never experienced before, you know? And yeah. uh, we're trying to figure out how, how, how we can do with it. You know, what, what do you do? Um, how do you be strategic? How do you fight back? Should you fight back? You know, or should you just not care? Is the world just nihilistic and, you know, uh, the systems under which we, we live are relevant and maybe we should just, you know, mind our own business and um, go to the beach and, you know, you know huddle with our friends, you know, uh, maybe that's the answer, or maybe, um, maybe there's something we can do, you know, and, and I would say that question is still unanswered, you know, we know for sure we should protect ourselves that much. We know what we can do for others is still, still, I would say a, a slightly undecided, you know? Yeah, it's a great point. And uh, I guess I see this line arcing out of I mean, it goes perhaps a little bit before the Magna Carta, but it was written in the Magna Carta, right? Life, liberty, property. And so these principles started to embed themselves in our consciousness. They ultimately uh, formed, you know, the basis of capitalism, right? The right to life, liberty, yeah, property. Sure. We sort of twisted it in the U.S. We swapped out property for pursuit of happiness. Maybe well, that's sort of, which is sweet in some way. It's right? cute, but I don't. I think property is much more important than happiness. Honestly, I think happiness is a bit ephemeral, right? It comes yeah. if you if you have freedom, frankly, and responsibility for for things. But when you abdicate that, it's a problem. Uh, that ushered in the United States, which is the greatest 
social experiment of these principles in history. We've became the yeah. dominant power in the world. We've lifted billions out of poverty. Capitalism, even though it's state marginalized, has been a success, you know, by in the in terms of human history. But now it seems like, and maybe this is because we left property out of the equation. It's like now the state has started to turn back on the property, private property rights of individuals. So are we in, because I know you said March 2020, which I agree is an inflection point, but I think the violation of property rights has been accelerating even before that, right? Post 2008, yeah. fiat currency inflation was accelerating before that, savings and loan crisis.com, et cetera. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, there's never any clean transition in, yeah. in history. Like you can you can go back and go back and go back. But um, but I I don't know there's certain things about 2020 that uh uh March 2020 that that are that are different. You know, the the travel restrictions from, from Europe mm. were, were a shock. The the fact that I I'm sorry to keep going back to this, but the fact that I could not legally invite more than 10, 10 people into my home. It's insane. It's my home. Yeah. Right. Yeah um the fact that the schools were shut and and hundreds of thousands of small businesses were were destroyed while the big boxes were um protected and and served so um, let me ask you something because I'm, I'm a little curious about this um there's no question that like access to power mm -hmm. determined the extent of your rights over the last uh 21 months the extent to which you actually have um, connections mm -hmm. that determined whether you could keep your business open and so on. Um, to me, this is a bit of a shock, you know, and, and then, you know, if you could work from home, you had rights, I guess. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were working class and, and, and couldn't do that, never, you don't really have a computer. You don't care about it. You have a cell phone, but you don't care about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're still hustling, you're hustling and delivering groceries and the New York times would routinely say for the last 20 months, um, you should stay home and have your groceries delivered. They didn't say you should deliver groceries, right? So, <laughs> so they know uh, who their audience is, right? So mm -hmm. there, there is definitely a class element here, you know? Yes. And um, it's a little bit of a shock to me. And I've always despised Marx, Karl Marx, but I never... But it's not enough just to despise somebody. You need to like understand why their writings were compelling. I'm beginning to kind of understand why his writings were compelling. The class privilege of people with access to some technologies and not others um, seems to be highly suggestive of political outcomes. And in this case, um, I'm not sure about the 19th century, the 18th century, I'm not sure about that. But certainly in this case, um, your your access to digital tools seems to have uh, privileged people to mm -hmm. to be uh, complete disregarding of the interests of the working classes, you know, uh, yeah. and the poor. And so it's a little strange to me because, like, as I said, I just I think Marx was basically dumb, um, and and uh, I read his works, I'm like, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But his core insight that that class matters. It, it it might be true, you know? Yes. Yeah, I'm, you know, one uh, intellectual tradition I've been exposed to through Bitcoin is Rothbard libertarianism. Yeah, sure. And he makes this excellent point that 
the very existence of taxation, which is to mm -hmm. say revenue is generated through coercion, <clears throat> right? It's, it's theft, as Rothbard would right. say. It bifurcates society into those that benefit from taxation and those that fund taxation. So the taxpayers are the subjects of the tax consumers, as he calls them. Right. And I can't help but relate that, um, that the rate at which we're violating the property rights of taxpayers to fund the, the interest or aims of tax consumers is the rate at which we are decivilizing. Um, and, you know, I think it was Ayn Rand that said, you know, property is the basis of all other human rights, right? If you can't preserve yeah. of your labor across time, you can't have any other right. rights. So we're, we're violating the very foundation of all other human rights. And we wonder why mm -hmm. things are being thrown into disarray. I, maybe it's a simplistic view, but I think just the economic structure we're in is designed to bifurcate society in that way. So it's not surprising to me that we're seeing it manifest more when we accelerate mm -hmm. the violations mm -hmm. of property. Yeah. And I think, I think Murray would, would say that that's actually the, the sort of the purpose of politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like as we know, politics as we know them. Yes. Um, uh, which involves the state, mm -hmm. and the state, the state needs to keep us all in a frenzy of, of fear. Yes. And um, and there has to be some way to divide people because naturally in a market, we all get along. Right. Which, right, like I hope people don't forget, like in two thousand nineteen. You could walk down the streets of any commercial district in, in any city in the world and have friends all around you and mm -hmm. and really enjoy your life and, and meet strangers that are from a different place and you're so fascinated, like where are you from, kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. so that, that that was the the marketplace, it was the agora, you know, under which we we encountered people not like ourselves, but we found value in them mm -hmm. and dignity, and we realized. Something very important, which is that their existence helps me, and my existence helps helps them. Yes. We we had a cooperative relationship, but, but politics doesn't like that. Right. Politics likes something else. Uh, politics likes division and friends and enemies, mm -hmm. and it likes hatred, and it likes killing, and it likes blood, mm -hmm. and it likes death. Um, anything to keep the regime alive. Mm -hmm. it, the regime has to live, and and how it lives is through division mm -hmm. and death. And, and, um, and I think this is why Murray hated the state, ultimately. I'm gonna turn this off, I'm so sorry. Um, this is why he hated the state, because it, it divided people from each other, you know? Mm -hmm. Like we are naturally, as Benjamin Constant used to say, we have a natural interest in getting along with each other. Mm -hmm. But the state, doesn't want that. You know, the right. state doesn't want us to get along. The state wants us to, to hate. And we turn against our neighbors, and then we, we turn to uh, uh, state managers to help us. Um, a lot of my, my influences here are really um, due to this book I read called the... Um, it was by Carl Schmidt. It was written in, like, 1931. Oh. Um, uh, called um, something of politics, the essence of politics or something like that. And he hated liberalism in the old classical sense. 
And he said, look, life without politics is boring and dreadful. All you do, all you do is, you know, have barbecue, backyard barbecues and, and, and baseball and, and, and surfing. And um, one day flows into the next and you get along with others. And he said, like, nobody wants to live that kind of life. Nobody wants to live like that. You, you really want, you want big things to happen to you, something dramatic. You want upheavals. And the only way we can um, really achieve that is through through politics, through hatred, through bloodshed. And I don't mean just like symbolic enemies. I want blood to flow in the streets, he said. That's, that's where you find meaning. That's how you find meaning in life. That's how you know your life matters, says Carl Schmidt. Now, he was a huge, of course, Nazi. Uh, eventually uh, Nazi. He was put on the Nuremberg trials and they they uh, eventually exonerated him on grounds that he was just a crazy intellectual, so therefore didn't kill anybody. But he killed a lot of people actually with these views. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what he said. It's like, our lives have to mean something. And, and, and bourgeois capitalism does not give us meaning. It just gives us abundance and Mm. peace and abundance and peace is boring so politics gives us something gives us turmoil gives us difficulty gives us struggle gives us heroes uh gives us enemies um but he has this other weird comment in there he's like so who is the enemy and his answer is it doesn't matter the enemy is whomever the state Decides is the enemy. The, the point of enemyness is that it exists. It's not mm. the who, it's the what. Mm. Uh, so, um, so, so there are there are people out there who believe this, you know. Wow. And so long as states exist, there will be somebody who's a a, um, a convert to the Schmidtian view. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read Machiavelli, it's the same. Uh, very similar sort of thing. So I think we're being manipulated uh, by forces very much outside of our control. Um, shouldn't be, but they are. Um, we we have the potential as humanity all to get along, through which we find meaning. We should we should find meaning for ourselves. Yes. Like you have to do this. I have to do this. We have to find find out what makes our lives meaning meaningful. But Meaning cannot come through violence. It can't come through destruction. It can't come through bloodshed. Um, we tried that in the yes. 20th century, and and we found it uh, ghastly and, and awful. Um, I'll f- finish my soliloquy with the following observation. Uh, very early on in the lockdowns, I, I observed that uh, 20-somethings were all in, you know, especially, well, I mean, I, I drove up to a a distillery in Massachusetts, and uh, my favorite distillery, where they previously sold all sorts of fancy liquors and that sort of thing. And this might have been something like March. Let me just make a guess: twenty fifth. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, she was dressed, you know, in a long sweater dress with gloves, and had a mask over her face and a hat on her head. It looked like a Taliban wife, and she was like this millennial girl who was previously this hipster with rings and every part of her face that she could find to put a new ring in. She put it in and tatted all over the place. And the ultimate freedom, freedom kind of girl suddenly became the compliant officer of the state. Mm. 
and and I drove up in my um, um, my two seater uh, you know S two K convertible and double breasted suit and said, "Hey, what's going on? You know, let's let's have some uh, let's let's do this liquor thing." She said, "We're we're sell selling hand hand sanitizer." <laughs> And uh, and I said, well, congratulations for you. It's nothing like making a profit off a pandemic, huh? Good for you. And she said, well, that's disgusting. Uh, you should not be out having fun during these times. So <laughs> she flipped from being, you know, you you know what I mean, right? She yeah. flipped from being, you know, a freewheeling, twenty-something uh, 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 happy girl to being all in all in with the pandemic and the religion of lockdowns wow. and a few months later um i met i had as an intern a nice i forget now where where she was from but she was i, I talked her down from her lockdown ideology a little bit and i one evening mm -hmm. after a couple of cocktails and i said something to her i said listen i have a question to ask you it's like a little bit a little bit weird this this virus doesn't affect you at all like obviously you should you should you should probably get in, get over it, and get immunities, and move on with life. Like, how come? How come so many, of, including you, because I knew when I first met her that she was all lockdowny. Mm -hmm. I said, "How come? How come you and so many of your compatriots, your age, are uh, are into this stuff?" And she said, "And you know what she said to me is the most interesting thing." She said, "Well, this pandemic is the first thing." that's really ever happened to us, ever happened. Hmm. Yeah, so my mind goes back to Carl Schmitt. What does it mean by happened? So she's, she's 25 years old, 23, 24, I don't know. Hmm. Every day has happened to her, but nothing meant anything to her hmm. until this, this crisis, this germ, these mandates, this epic event, imparted to her some sort of sense that her life meant something. And so she wanted to participate in it. She wanted to become a, a compliance officer, a Karen, huh. you know, part of the Red Guard, you know, um, for spiritual reasons, because right. it, it seemed to give her some sense of purpose. I guess what I'm saying is like, we're not going to get out of this until we find uh, some purpose behind beyond politics, right? Mm. Some, some meaning that's not attached to calamity. <laughs> right? yes. We have to figure out how to live happy and fulfilled lives in peace with our neighbors. Uh, yes. Somehow we have to figure out how to do that before we can get out of this crisis. Yeah, so many excellent points there. Um, I'd like to try to respond and then I'll read another excerpt from your piece mm -hmm. here. So I like that you bring up Schmidt because he has this quote on sovereignty, actually. And he says that mm -hmm. sovereign is he who can decide the exception. And this points to me to this historical contention, largely at the state level, but at other levels before that, that we have organizations of human beings fighting over who gets to make the rules, right? Make and break the rules, make the exceptions to the rules, bend them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm reminded here of the old Roth, Rothschild quote, give me a power to issue a nation's currency. I care not who makes its laws, right? It's, right. it's all about the money right. at the end of the day. And right. um, where you're saying that we need 
because this contention, this outside threat, it also has this strange effect of unifying people, right? So to, hmm. I think it was uh, William James talking about the moral equivalent of war. We would never overcome the horrors of war until we had some moral equivalent to it. That war is what unified people, brought people together, arrayed them in a single direction. But I don't think you can get real, I mean, maybe that gives you meaning of life to some extent, but clearly that's not sustainable. You can't have the meaning of life being destroying the lives of others. So that just doesn't mm. clearly doesn't work. Um, and I, I've often thought that the meaning of life is something like people helping people like the Marcus Aurelius is like, you know, we're, the, we're like the hands of the left and right hand, the rows of upper and lower teeth were designed to operate together. That's what human mm. being is really. So I say all that and I, I hope we can find a moral equivalent to war, some rule set. And this is where I'll insert the Bitcoin, tying it to Carl Schmitt's point, is that Bitcoin is the first exception-proof database or the exception-proof money we've ever had. Mm -hmm. So if sovereignty is based on who gets to make the exception, nobody gets to make the exception in Bitcoin, thereby maximizing the sovereignty of all of its users. So this yeah. is why people, I think, are very uh, wrapped up in its promise. I'll, I'll read one more excerpt here, and I'd love to get your thoughts. You write, quote, that the pace has been fiercely fast, but somehow just slow enough that people and media personalities adjust to the new. The cycle proceeds. Last week's shock becomes this week's normal. And then politicians scramble to create the next big intervention, covering previous failures with new nostrums all while ignoring or censoring opposing views. Have we wow. learned nothing from the Nuremberg trials? Because wasn't that no. the first? No, point? because no, because they're in the past. So this every, every, apparently, apparently every new generation imagines that it is better than its parents and their, their parents. And so we study history, not really, not really, uh, uh, to, to, to learn not to repeat it. We study history to look down on the, on the uh, absurdities of, of, of those who came before, their brutalities, their ignorance, their prudishness, whatever. But we look down on anybody who came before us and go, we are so much better than they. Right? That, that's why we study history. And we create caricatures. Well, I would never vote for that guy with that tiny mustache and that barking voice. Uh, that's preposterous. I don't know what's wrong with those people. I can't believe this. What did that idiot? Well, look at that other guy, you know, that Russian guy, Stalin. Oh, right. We, I, we, we would never tolerate that Pol Pot. Give me a break. You know, um, Mao, what, his red book? It's filled with inanities. Uh, all of us, all of us are way more enlightened than that. And so on it goes. Can you believe they had slavery? Why did they think that some people could, could be ch chained up uh, by virtue of the color of the skin and other people by virtue of their color of the skin could, could live in fancy mansions? Huh? That's, a, that's a weird world. We are so much better than they. Mm. So we don't study history really to learn lessons. We study history to flatter ourselves. Mm. So we block out the lessons, right? Mm -hmm. We don't learn the lesson that we are fully capable of, 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 of every bit of brutalism of the past. 
Uh, we don't believe that about ourselves. So therefore, we're blind to seeing it all around us. Hmm. This is what happens. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So in your view, is it possible to break this cycle of criminality against ourselves? Is it a matter of so I've always wanted to believe that. Um, I've always wanted to believe we could break the cycle. And I'm embarrassed, actually, about some things I used to believe. I used to think that um, the migration to the digital world would give us infinite access to information and uh, humanity could become permanently smart. And I feel like a little bit of a naive, you know, uh, Victorian Whig uh, who imagined in 1890 that we would do nothing but but, but make great products and ennoble people ever more progressively. Um, and there was no chance of going back. And, and yet here we are. You know, so I'm, um, I don't think so. I think we have to, I'm not sure. This is the, these are profound questions. Um, I'm not entirely sure I understand, but it seems like we need to have a culture that embraces human rights. Like, mm-hmm. like even Bitcoin, as glorious as it is, uh, can't overcome, I mean, it can persist through, but it cannot finally overcome a world that doesn't believe in freedom. So True. along with with uh, a blockchain technology, and I want to talk about this, um, we also need an ideological, philosophical structure uh, of culture that, that embraces human rights and peace. Like we we have to have that. If we don't have that, I'm not sure how. Then we just become survivors, you know. Right. And we we it's it, it becomes a, a, um, you know, that Mel Gibson movie. What's that? You know, he wrote like Braveheart. Like, no, no, the 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 one with all the deserts and all the you know the driving the cars around. Oh, Mad Max. Yeah. Yeah. It's Mad Max, except we have, we have uh, sound money. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> I don't want to live in that world. You know? yeah. um, and let me just say something about Bitcoin because, you know, God bless it. Right. I mean, during the lockdowns, it, it never blinked. Never once. Mm-hmm. Never went down. Uh, it was never hacked. Uh, there was never a 40 day period. There was, you know, when 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 Trump announced fifty days, fifteen days to flatten the curve, Bitcoin didn't blink, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like it just like pushed through, and so and you look at it like over over twenty months, you know, our religions failed, our healthcare systems failed, our schools mm-hmm. failed, our travel failed, airlines, 
um, uh, uh, supply chains, uh, food delivery, uh, you know, there were, there were massive failures in every sector of life. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin ignored it all. Yes. Clean slice through every state in the world, like a sharp sword. Brilliantly said, honestly, um, I have less eloquently said that it was the only thing that didn't shut down March, 2020. Um, You, you know, you brought up slavery earlier and clearly that's a past that is one of those things we look down on our, on the, on our ancestors, right? I can't believe they would ever do that, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a point I often make. The definition of a slave is someone under an effective tax rate of 100%, where all the fruits of their labor go to the tax authority. Mm-hmm. So we can all quantify our own personal spectrum of slavery by what our effective tax rate is. And, you know, taxation comes in a lot of flavors, but Bitcoin at least addresses the inflation side of the equation where we can hold our wealth and our property in a money mm-hmm. that cannot be inflated. Um, and my hope would be, you know, that that level of freedom somehow reflects back into us and our characters and our actions that we would strive to establish more of this freedom focused Mm. philosophical foundation you're describing. Mm. Um, I guess my view is just that we have this relationship, right? The tools we make in turn make us back. So how do you see the role of technology and tools in establishing this, this new Philosophical well, I, I, I wrote a book called A Beautiful Anarchy, which is mostly entirely incorrect. Uh, as I look back on <laughs> it, uh, it's embarrassing. Actually, I, I think a copy of that book is about $900 on Amazon right now. So, because uh, oh. <laughs> so, apparently the, the publisher you know, took it out of print or something like that. So, I should probably republish it just into, it's in three languages, but the English version is like $900 on Amazon. Um, but it celebrated all the big tech titans. And uh, I imagined a world of, of information and free flow of ideas. So I had a chapter on the glories of Facebook and the glories of Twitter and the wonder of LinkedIn. And, and you too is magnificent for empowering individuals. And of course, over time, they all became corrupt. They all became basically uh, state, state voices and state, mm. state companies. I mean, like, we have a constitution, so the government can't actually violate our free speech rights, not very well. We can outsource its ambitions, mm-hmm. and uh, they outsourced all their ambitions to big tech. So that book is mostly entirely wrong. Uh, what I didn't understand is that uh, you know all these privately owned uh, companies have a central point of failure, and and what we really need are these uh, distributed uh, systems, mm-hmm. you know, that that uh, transcend uh, a state, the real metaverse which is to say, you know, above and beyond politics. Mm-hmm. And, and um, those tools are doing extremely well mm-hmm. uh, now. And, and my, I, one of my favorite thinkers is George Gilder. He wrote a book called Life After Google. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, Google's a, um, a centralized company, uh, but that's not the future. So I'm fully anticipating all the companies I celebrated in that, in that book, Beautiful Anarchy. Um, I wasn't anarchist enough, in other words, mm. in that book. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, true anarchism 
uh, is not possible without distributed networks. Yes. Yeah, well said. I, I saw recently that YouTube is removing the count of dislikes on their videos, largely yeah. because these videos out of DC were getting, you know, a thousand to one dislike to like ratio. Sure. So, so, well, we have a legitimacy crisis uh, with the state here at this yes. point. And I think, I think the present regime is popular by 36%, according to even to official polls, must be much less than that. Right. And I swear to you that you can get a third of Americans to believe in anything that the moon is made of Roquefort cheese, you know, I mean, like, so, so at this point, I assume that th once Biden administration hits 30, 33%, that means it's, you know, fully and wholly and completely discredited. Well, we, we are about to experiment with something very interesting. Like, like, what is it? What? We don't even know the answer to this question. We're going to soon find out. What is it like to live in a Western democracy that, uh, you know, where the government is completely delegitimized? Like, what happens then? We know what happened under autocracies and despotisms and one-party states in 1989 and 1990 throughout Eastern Europe's Soviet Union. I mean, the government's just melted and collapsed. It just mm -hmm. fell apart. We don't know yet what that looks like in Western democracy, especially with a failing currency. So, uh, so you've, you've got a one-party state right now in, in the United States. And, we, and the, how many months we have left until they're overthrown? I mean, like... So we're gonna they're gonna lose Congress in in, in twelve months. That's a long time, um, and then twenty four months. I'm sure that, you know Biden administration is gonna lose, and then we're gonna be replaced by the Republicans, which are marginally better. But you know, God knows. Um, but we don't know what this looks like, mm. um, especially when you're, you're looking at a failing currency. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. where where you have supply chains disrupted, like fundamentally where car salesmen have nothing to do in the day because they have no cars, where liquor distributors uh, show up just to do their jobs, but they have no product to sell. Right. Um, and people are just scooting around from place to place, sustaining their, their jobs in hopes of better times, but there's actually no hope of better times because because the supply chains are broken, the chips are not going to arrive for another two years. Uh, where, where the food manufacturing plants are uh, 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 having a hard time attracting workers, and inspectors are not willing to show up because they're not willing to get the vaccine. All right, so we've got real problems. Yeah, you know, a problem of hyperinflation mm -hmm. plus shortages. Plus an administration that won't hesitate for a second to impose price controls. Mm. In other words, the possibility of radical deprivation in, in uh, 2022, where, where families have to choose between heating their homes and feeding their children. I mean, I, what, what's going to happen then? What, what's going to happen? And I'm telling you, I don't want this to happen. But uh, the central state always imagines it's in control. But it's it's not right. You know, there's certain natural forces in the world, you know, economic laws that operate independent of whatever um, uh, central managers believe they can do. Mm -hmm. We've seen this at Weimar, you know, and mm -hmm. and we see the revolution, you know. And I don't want this to happen to us. I d you didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for this. But we could be heading towards 
like true calamity mm. of, of astonishing proportions. And I'm, I hope that that doesn't happen. But if it does happen, I hope people look back at this podcast and go, okay, those guys were right. This is very scary. Yeah, very scary indeed. Um, and, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. You, you alluded to this regime, perhaps it's beyond, you know, pulling the strings is beyond our comprehension. So I'd like to understand a little bit more how you view that. What is that regime? Is it the same one that's persisted over time? Like, is this from Weimar to today? Or, or is this just some innate human problem that keeps re-expressing itself? And then to what extent do you think control over the money is necessary for that regime to exert control? Because oh, it, this, they, they have to have it. And this is why they're panicked. It's, it's actually quite hilarious. I have a friend of mine. Let me just backtrack here. Um, so this is 2021. 20, uh, so let's just say this was... Um, let's just say 20, I'm going to make this number up slightly, 2015. Right. And I think Janet Yellen was the uh, head of the Fed. So my friend went in with a gang of Bitcoiners into the Federal Reserve offices and said, hey, we've got this great new technology. And uh, it's called Bitcoin. And it's peer-to-peer -peer, uh, currency lives on a distributed network. And its value is entirely imparted by the market, not by authority. Mm. Not even by you know, gold. It, it just is what it is mm -hmm. by virtue of its ownership status mm -hmm. and this ledger that keeps track of it. And she, she, in front of Janet Yellen, she shot the QR code off some charitable site or whatever and sent Bitcoin. And I went through and showed it to Yellen. And she said, wow, that's fascinating. Um, uh, who processed that transaction? And my friend said, no one, it's just the blockchain. There's these miners and they, and their protocols confirm transactions. So there's no counterparty risk at all. We have no third party uh, uh, trust agencies of trust at all. It's a, a trustless network in that sense. And Janet had no idea what she was talking about, like none. That couldn't even conceive of it. Now we're we're talking about six years later, so they're a little more sophisticated, mm -hmm. but uh, but they're still terrified. Mm -hmm. And what really terrifies them are the stablecoins, mm -hmm. uh, because we know what's happened with stablecoins. They've replaced banks. Mm -hmm. They've replaced the only function that central banks have in the world, which is settlement services. Mm -hmm. Now. It turns out uh, stablecoins provide settlement services that are, you know, just because like instant, uh, 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 you know, a, a fraction of the price um, with zero counterparty risk. And that unites the world. I mean, stablecoins are glorious. Mm. And it's, that's what, is it, it wasn't even Bitcoin so much that, that caused the central bankers to panic, but it was, it was more the stablecoins because they realized that in a mar free market of competitive remittances, they can't compete. Right. So, so I think that the, the central banks are, are looking to destroy the stablecoins. That's, that's my, my thought and all the companies that are issuing, but they, it's way too late for that, right? They can't do it. And that's why they want, um, that's why they want their own cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. 
it's not so much because they want to empower <laughs> users. Obviously, they can't come up with a Fed coin that competes with, you know, the top, you know, 300 crypto tokens, right? Um, but what they're really pissed off about is the settlement services. That's what, mm. that's what upsets them because they don't want to be shown up. And they realize that they have to become part of, part of the future, but they can't. Mm. They can't become part of this future because they're they're because they're, they are part of the past, institutionally and otherwise. So we're setting up ourselves up for a real struggle, and and unless the state can get back money, and the services associated with that, they are afraid they're going to go into the dustbin of history, as mm. states. Yeah, so, yeah, it's. Uh, one of the great promises of Bitcoin, I guess, is that we could build a model of human organization that's non-coercive, which would mean non-statist. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree with you. They do see stable coins as an immediate and present threat. Right. But I would argue that that is myopic, actually. They're, they're missing the forest for the trees, so to speak, in that mm. I think Bitcoin is actually disruptive to gold. So they're dealing with something that they you know, much larger than they can even deal with. Because yeah. gold still is the game, by the way, right? Banks still, central banks still accumulate and hold gold. Man, they're all old fashioned. Yeah, to control right. people, right? It's like the the prime geopolitical monetary layer is still gold. So if that layer is being disrupted by digital technology, then the state and the central bank, yeah, they, they've got quite the, the wild ride in front of them. I, I knew this in 2013. I, I realized very quickly that, that Bitcoin has all the properties of gold plus certain advantages over gold, namely weightlessness and instant portability uh, around the world without geographic proximity. So, um, so yeah, Bitcoin is definitely, I would say, <coughs> over the long term, replaced gold as a, yeah, the historic role of gold is a bit, is now and now has now Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's not fully revealed yet, but yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but your intuition's spot on that it's that limited portability of gold that necessitated the yeah. central bank to scale it. So when you mm -hmm. when you optimize the portability of money as we've done in Bitcoin, you the central banks are relevant. Yeah. So if if you're relevant and you and you have no market services, what happens to you eventually? You know? Go away. Um yeah, I mean, the buggy whip uh, industry was pretty <laughs> awesome for a lot of years, but uh, <laughs> by 1925, it became problematic. It didn't matter. Like, you can use all the force you want to, but there's something more powerful than guns and weaponry and, and power, and that is uh, markets. Yes, absolutely. Everything is downstream of economics, as I've argued a lot. I'd like to read hmm. one more uh, okay. near, near the conclusion of your piece here, but I think it's very powerful. You write that the symbolic act of medicinal compliance easily becomes a physical sign of political compliance, the ID card. That then becomes the basis of the reductio ad absurdum, the political purge, an intensification of the mask mandate to become a needle mandate as a means of ferreting out dissidents. Thus does this mandate fulfill the illiberalism of our current moment in civic life and serve only to consolidate political power in the end. Pure is never pure enough, which is why Biden now says he demands 98% vaccination rates and even small children at zero risk are being roped in. All of this will be as ineffective in achieving its aims as the rest of the virus control strategies. Over time, 
It only fuels public anger and builds a resistance force and gives rise to new institutions determined to preserve and practice the precious right of human freedom. Whatever drug I was on when I wrote that, I want to take that all the time. <laughs> that's good. I'm sorry, but that's good. Send me some too, because that is damn yeah. good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, sorry to praise myself, but yeah, that's good. Sometimes I don't even believe that I write what I write, actually, because every day for me is new and I don't forget what I wrote. Um, but yeah, that was good. And also, actually, I would say prophetic, because that's exactly what's happening. Um, the, the the shots are no longer medicine, right? It's no longer we we know this. Yeah, I think any any thinking uh, person who's observing the world around us is not. This is no longer about disease mitigation. I mean, it really is com about compliance. Um, um, you know, it's whether it's a vaccine or a beanie on your head. I mean, they 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 want to see signs. Uh, of of compliance mm -hmm. that's that's what it's all about and i i just have to believe this i mean like so here's the problem states have outlived their usefulness and that happened a long time ago but it's becoming ever more obvious so what do you do if you are a state what are you going to do when history has moved beyond you when the trajectory of time uh, has called you um, outmoded. The last time the state did anything really impressive was something like the moonshot, you know, in 1962. Mm. I mean, otherwise, there's been nothing but wars and wars. Um, so they, they, they. So this is what's important. They finally seized on epidemiology as a as a as a frontier they hadn't quite invaded in a long time, mm. and they were going to mitigate disease for us, and we were going to all celebrate thank you government for saving us from a virus they didn't it didn't work it flopped their their lockdowns um their their restrictions their closures and and now their their vaccines tax-funded vaccines and the jabs it's been 21 months of catastrophic failure mm -hmm. so you know what's next that status can be creative too there'll, there'll be a next i don't know what it's going to be uh -huh. but um if i was going to like put myself into the mind of hegelian i would say um the state is doomed to obsolescence mm -hmm. in our lifetimes i don't know um but it's definitely happening now when that's complete i i don't know but it's definitely happening so we're on this trajectory. We can see it all progressing. We can see what's happening. We can see um, the state and its managers panicking. Mm -hmm. What's our next source of fear? I don't know. The failure to mitigate this disease, even despite the extreme measures which have gone on for so long, is probably the, certainly the greatest failure of the government in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Maybe in all times. What's next? I hope it's freedom. Real freedom. We shall see. Amen to that. Um, yeah, it seems as though the state, realizing its obsolescence, needed a pretext to reimpose this political divisiveness. And that yeah. was this 
quote unquote pandemic. Um, yep, I saw this in 2006 when when uh, Bush was was going on like a like a lunatic, you know, in press conferences about the avian bird flu. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, we're going to have to lock down. We're going to have to shut your businesses and close your schools. We're all going to have to get into a tremendous frenzy about this. Unfortunately for him, the avian bird flu never left the avian birds, or whatever birds they were, mm-hmm. uh, and then the human population. So he lost his chance. But mm-hmm. that was 15 years ago. And uh, and I wrote at the time, I was like, you know, the state is, is basically obsolete. They failed at everything they've ever done. Yeah. Education, healthcare, um, national security, you name it. It's one big flop. Yes. So, so we're living in, and uh, so even in 2006, I said this, I was like, they're looking for a rationale for their existence. Every institution has to have a rationale. Yes. Uh, what happens when the, the whole public has just lost belief in an entire institution? Well, now here's what's happening right now. I mean, it's not only the state that's failing, but they're taking all their associated institutions with them big media now big tech uh, uh, universities and expert experts the expert uh, expertise I mean like everything that we're supposed to trust has been is being discredited right now so we're, we're experiencing this massive loss of trust in in everything we used to that everybody told us we we're supposed to trust in and now they've they've failed so I mean the the more funda- fundamental question is like, what do you really trust? You know, and that's what all of us are going to ask ourselves right now. Um, you know, what's reliable? What can you depend on? Where's my source of stability in life? What is it? What what is not exposed to the contingencies of 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 politics and violence? You know, what, where is that? And anything that passes that test. Is gonna is is the future. Well, I think that is a great place to put a button on it. Um, Jeffrey, thank you so much for your work. I mean, this your writing is <laughs> I've already read it three times, reading it out loud to you here. I got chill bumps again. So thank you so much. <laughs> I hope it resonates with others the same way it does. It resonated with me, I must say. That's good. That's good stuff. <laughs> I just wrote an article today that's like not nearly as good. I'm going to post it after you get off. <laughs> so I should just repost that one. So yeah, anyway, you, you got to get more of those limitless pills you're taking over there because they are good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're a very thoughtful interviewer, and I really appreciate how much you've indulged me and, and allowed me to speak and, and inspired me to uh, say what I hope are true things. I'm grateful to you and your podcast. Grateful to you as well. If you could please let my audience know where they can find out more about you. Oh, sure. Work. So the, the Brownstone Institute is my sanctuary. And that's all you need to know. I can I also post on Twitter so long as they allow me to. So <laughs> that's what happens. But I'm in a lot, of, a lot of other places. So, But Brownstone is my uh, my true love. So uh, check it out. Um, I, I, I have a rule uh, about Brownstone, that every single article must absolutely be valuable and contribute to your life. And I will not publish it uh, unless it does. So that's, that's I think, been my rule, editorial rule at Brownstone. So I hope, I hope all your readers like it. That is a great rule. And thank you again for everything that you're doing. Mm.